Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Got a special one for you, a bit of an extra bonus episode this week. My buddy Chris Christensen, he is the host of the Amateur Traveler podcast. We'll link up to that in the show notes. He sent out his first episode way back in 2005. So he's been doing this for a long time. And his show, Amateur Traveler, is really focused on travel destinations, meant to help you decide where to go next, what to do. And the content's really meant to help you do some travel planning and discover some new destinations. So we decided to exchange shows. I would put a show on his Amateur Traveler feed so his audience could check out some of what we got going on at Zero to Travel. And I wanted to put one of his shows on here for you so you could see what he's got going on over at Amateur Traveler and discover some new destinations for yourself. This particular episode is a recent one he put out on Galicia, Spain. I didn't know they have something called the Coast of Death in Galicia until I listened to this show. So here it is. Without further ado, enjoy your trip through the province of Galicia in northern Spain with the amateur traveler Chris Christensen. Thanks for listening. Amateur Traveler, episode 838. Today, the amateur traveler talks about castles and castros, Oreos and Hercules, peppers and playas as we go to the province of Galicia in northwestern Spain. This is Chris Christensen from Amateur Traveler. Let's talk about Galicia. I'd like to welcome to the show Lisa Rose Wright from lisaroserightwixsitecom slash author, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, who has come to talk to us about a region in northern Spain. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm delighted to be here to share some of the secrets of my adopted home with your listeners. Maybe I could start by explaining where Galicia is. Do you think that would be useful for people? That would be good. But first, should I call you Lisa or Lisa Rose? Oh, call me Lisa. Yeah, okay. we'll be informal. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, where are we talking um, about? So there's actually two Galicias in Europe. The other one is actually in Poland. 
but we are the autonomous region in the far northwest of Spain, so that's the bit above Portugal. We're bounded on two sides by the sea, the Cantabrian Sea on the north and the Atlantic Ocean on the west. And the next point west of us is actually the USA, about 3,000 miles away. On the east side of Galicia, we're bounded by mountains and then Asturias. And on the south, we are bordered by Portugal and the wide River Minho. So it's quite an isolated region, if you imagine that. It's this small square place. It's only, I think, 11,500 square miles. So we're not particularly big and quite isolated. So that makes it an interesting place, I think. And then why should someone go to Galicia? So Galicia is, I would say, variety in miniature. It's a compact package for the traveller. If I can just do a little quote, because there's a Galician author who actually said it a lot better than me, Galician poet Vicente Risco. He summed Galicia up, and it's my paraphrasing, so apologies for that. You say Galicia is very small. I say to you, Galicia is a world. You can travel in a short time from north to south and from east to west. You can return time and again, but you won't be able to cover it all. And every time you return, you'll discover something new. Galicia may be small in size, but in depth, in individuality, it is as big as you wish. Excellent. Do you have any of your own words you want to add on to your author's quote there? Yeah, you can see so much in Galicia in really quite a small space of time. We've got so much history. We've got a weight of history going back 4,000 years to the early Stone Age. The Celts, the Romans, the Visigoths, even the Vikings visited Galicia and many of their structures actually still remain. We've got Roman walls, we've got Celtic hill forts, we've got Stone Age burial chambers. And if you're a city person, we have very easily accessible cities. Our largest city is only 300,000 people, and the historic centres are all small enough to explore on foot in a day. If you're interested in tradition and culture, Galicia's got more fairs and festivals than anywhere else I know. Year-round, there's something to do and visit. We've got gastronomic festivals, Roman reconstructions and Celtic music festivals. We have four World Heritage Sites and six natural parks. Am I going on too long here, Chris? No, that's Just good. So. <laughs> that's right. good. Excellent. You Sorry. live in Galicia. I so do. I've lived in Galicia for 15 years, yeah. We should talk about pronunciation first. You're pronouncing it with a Castilian pronunciation, so you're saying Galicia and I'm saying Galicia, and I may not be yeah. able to change my pronunciation. The answer to either. And in fact, in Galician, it's Galicia with a, a Z. Oh, so interesting. That's okay. Again. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and what brought you to Galicia? That's, that's an interesting question, really. The first time we entered Galicia, we actually came over a very high road bridge from Asturias, carrying very large rucksacks while we were walking the Camino del Norte, the north coast route of the Camino de Santiago. Mm -hmm. It was blowing a gale as we walked over that bridge, and it was really quite terrifying. But as soon as we stepped onto Galician soil, we felt like we were home. There was just this pull that had got nothing to do with the howling wind that was blowing me over. And we'd been looking for a while to move away from England. We're both English, myself and my husband. And Galicia just felt right somehow. We ended up visiting houses on that occasion instead of finishing the Camino. 
and we never looked back, basically. We eventually found a house four years later, and that was that. It sounds quite fanciful, I suppose, but I've actually known a lot of people here who came for a holiday and ended up staying. So your listeners need to be aware of that, I think, if they come on a holiday. It has this pull, does Galicia. Excellent. And you have hinted at it a couple times here. You mentioned the largest city in Galicia, and you didn't say the name of it, but people have probably already heard of it. Actually, Santiago de Compostela isn't the largest city in Galicia, if oh, that's I'm the one sorry. you're thinking okay. of. No, it's actually uh, quite small, is Santiago, in population terms. So it's uh, just the, the best-known city in Galicia. The best-known by a long way, yes, it is, yeah. The largest city is actually Vigo, which is a port city further south okay. on the coast. But yes, none of our cities are very big. I don't know the population of Santiago, but I think it's less than 100,000 people. Okay. It's really quite small. Excellent. If someone's going to Galicia, what kind of itinerary are you going to recommend for them? So what I've done here, I've done a circular tour of okay. Galicia. Now, I'll mention here about getting to Galicia because I think that's probably a good place to do it. You could visit most of the larger towns by public transport. You'll miss many of the more beautiful and less well-known areas that way because, unfortunately, we just don't have excellent transport links to the rural areas. Okay. So what I've done is I've devised an eight-day circular self-drive tour, which can be started anywhere, obviously, because it's circular. Although I'm going to start it in the port city of Acoronia on the north northern west side of Galicia, because Acoronia is the second most popular city after Vigo, and it's one of my favourite cities. So to get to Galicia, if you're coming from the US or many other places, you'll probably have to fly into Madrid. Mm. And then from there, you can either hire a car at Madrid Station, at Madrid Airport, I'm sorry. The drive along the the A6 motorway is actually fairly picturesque, and it's only four hours to Lugo, which is one of the Roman cities on my itinerary. Mm. You could alternatively fly into Acaronia Airport, which is an hour flight from Madrid, and hire a car there. Or you could get the new Ave high-speed train link, which is about two and a half hours, to the city of Orense, and start the tour from there. So there's sort of three ways to get to Galicia from Madrid. If you're coming from Europe, then you may be able to fly into Acaronia or into Santiago airports. Certainly from Britain you can. Excellent. So you're starting us in Acoruna. I'm starting from Acoruna, yes. Yeah, again, that's got many names in many languages, so don't worry <laughs> about it. The British used to just call it Coruña. It's called La Coruña or Acoruna, depending on which language you want to go for, but really it makes very little difference. Anyway, Acoruna is, like I said, the second most populous city in Galicia with just under 250,000 people, so not very big. It's situated on a northwest-facing peninsula, which bulges out into the Atlantic Ocean and creates a sheltered harbour on the east side. There's a lot of the big cruise ships. You could actually cruise to Acarunia if you felt inclined. A lot of the cruise ships stop. It's got a nearby airport, like I said, and it has a long association with the English, both as enemies and as allies, which I'll mention a little bit later on on the talk. The main city of Acarunia is sprawled onto the mainland of Galicia. But 
luckily for us, the sites that are of most interest to the tourists are found on the Bulbous headland. Now, I'd like to describe that because it's a strange sort of headland. It sprouts beyond the mainland and is joined to a very narrow isthmus, a very narrow neck, which is only maybe half a dozen streets wide. The bulb looks to me like a sort of E.T. style head, if you can imagine, with a narrow <laughs> neck and the two bulges either side. That, that pretty much sums it up. The right-hand bulge is home to Acarona's old town, which has lots of little narrow alleyways and bars and cafes and restaurants. There's also two sandy beaches on the headland. And on the northern left-hand side of the headland, it's home to a sculpture park and the iconic Tower of Hercules, or the Torre d'Hercules. This is the only working example of a Roman lighthouse still in existence. Huh. and is therefore the oldest active lighthouse in the world. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which was built in the first century of our era. Now, nothing actually remains of the original outer facade of the building, and it was covered in new stonework back in 1788, I believe. Okay. But inside, there's plenty of the remains of the original stone walls and the Roman chambers, and there's also a museum inside and some architectural and archaeological digs in there, which is very interesting. One point of interest is that it's actually twinned with the Statue of Liberty across the Atlantic Ocean. Who <laughs> are not sure why, but there you go. They like twinning things. Okay. <laughs> the Tower of Hercules is it's really worth seeing. It's a fascinating building. It sits on this headland surrounded by greenery. And you can go right up to the top. It's four stories high. And at the top, the viewing platform, you can see there's like a 360 degree view all the way around the Atlantic, the headland and back to Acarunya's old town. So it's really quite pretty and worth a look. The name of the tower, the Hercules Tower, there's a nice gory legend which says that Hercules, the Roman mythological hero, fought with a giant called Gerion, who was king of all the lands between the Tagus and the Duero rivers. Hercules was the victor, decapitating the giant and burying his head before ordering a tower to be built atop it. And then Hercules founded the city of Acarunya nearby, apparently. So, okay. Surrounding <laughs> the Tower of Hercules, there is, as I said, a sculpture park, which is a large green area with some 20 sculptures, in mainly in stone and in metalwork. Mm -hmm. Many of them depict Hercules and his labours. There's one that stands out for me, which is called the Monument to the Executed, which is a henge of standing stones. And it sits in an area known as Campo Dorata, which is where many people were executed by firing squad during and after the Spanish Civil War. It's really quite poignant when you stand there looking at it. They've got the names of the dead painted onto one of the henges and there's sort of splashes of red on some of the others to depict the blood that was shed there. So I think that's quite poignant, really. So we're going to start the tour there. The first day I would suggest staying in Acarunya. Mm -hmm. There's lovely bars and things in the old streets in the old town where you can get tapas and the local wines. The last time we stopped, we stayed in a hotel called Alda Galleria, which is a sort of boutique-style hotel 
right in the heart of the old town. And that was very nice. For eating, Acarona is a very cosmopolitan town. You can eat anything from Japanese to Thai to traditional Galician food. So it's quite a nice sort of gentle introduction to Galicia, I think, too. Okay. The second day of the tour, we're going to go down the west coast of Galicia, heading along the Costa del Morte, which is the coast of death. A lovely okay. name, isn't it? Why is it the coast of death? It's the coast of death because it's such a dangerous coast for shipping. For shipping. So many shipwrecks have occurred along this coast because there's a lot of rocks, slightly submerged rocks. It's very dangerous. The last well-known ship to sink there was the Prestige oil tanker, which you may have heard of. In 2002, it spilled Mm. its cargo onto the beaches and destroyed a lot of seabirds and wildlife. A very bad disaster. But there's been a lot of shipwrecks there, so it's called the Coast of Death for that. A bit of a scary name, but it's actually a really beautiful and wild coast. Quite interesting to drive down and to look at as well. We're going to drive down to a tiny village called Kameji. It's very small. There's virtually nothing there. But it's the resting place of an eccentric German artist who is called Manfred Gnadinger. Sorry, I'm not very good at German. But he was known locally as Man, which is much easier to pronounce. There's a museum in Kameji which is dedicated to him. He was a very eccentric person. He's described as being tall and thin with long hair and a long beard. And in pictures that I've seen, he wears nothing but a loincloth. Um, (laughs) He moved to Galicia in the 1960s and lived in a shack on the end of the harbour which had no electricity or water. He collected flotsam from the sea and made quite weird and wonderful sculptures using the debris. And when the prestige oil tanker went down, he actually declared that his outdoor museum, which was destroyed by the oil, should be left as it was. Because he said that man doesn't love man, nor the sea, nor the fishes, nor the beach. And he wanted that left, which they have, and it's still sitting there covered in oil, which is, again, quite poignant. But the museum is really interesting. There's thousands and thousands of his notebooks in there. He just wrote so many notebooks. And he opened his own museum to the public for a while and asked people to write down their thoughts, so they're all displayed there as well. It makes a nice little stop and quite an interesting place to to go somewhere that i don't think he's mentioned in very many guidebooks most of the places we're going to be going to in this tour are not places that are mentioned so much in the guidebooks so i'm not going to santiago de compostela because that's mentioned a lot and yes it's a lovely place but there's many more places that i want to introduce people to that just aren't in those guidebooks so i'm hopefully going to do that now The coast of death does sound really quite horrible, doesn't it? But there's some (laughs) lovely beaches along there. They're they're really beautiful. There's an interesting walk called the Camino dos Faros, the Lighthouse Way, Mm -hmm. which actually goes some 200 kilometres, what's that, about 120 miles, all the way from Acarona down to Finisterre. And you can do sections of that. If someone's got time, it's really well worth doing a day section because it takes in a lighthouse, unsurprisingly, on each section of the route. Mm -hmm. And it goes along cliffs and along beaches. 
and he's really quite stunning. We did a 14 kilometer, nine mile walk from Komeji to Lashi, which is a small seaside town, in a day, less than a day, a long morning. It was very pretty, really worthwhile walking along both the headland and beaches, so it's quite nice. Okay. From Kameji, we're going to keep heading down the west coast to Mushia, which is, you may have heard of, I think it was mentioned in one of your podcasts. It's one of the waypoints on the triangular extension to the Camino de Santiago, the Mushia Finisterre Way. Okay. I think the, was it Linda that walked the Camino de Santiago? And I then think she on went to, to Mushia. Mushia. And on to Finisterre, yeah. Okay. So... Mushia is very interesting. It's got a building called the Sanctuary of the Virgin of the Barge, which is quite iconic. It's a large stone church. It was first built as a hermitage, but the spot where it was built was sacred to the early Celts many years before as a place of worship and of magic too. It sits on the headland, and beyond that there's just sheets of granite rock with irregular boulders on it that have magical names and properties. There's the oscillating stone which wobbles if you go near it and the lover's stone which you can guess what properties that might have for people that (laughs) are looking for love. I I, I have some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently the, the Virgin Mary was actually said to have arrived on this coast in a stone barge to give inspiration and comfort to St. James of Santiago, who was struggling to convert the pagans of Galicia. And the large erratic boulders are said to be the remains of the Virgin's boat. It's interesting that this legend has quite a lot of the same themes as that of the Apostle St. James or Santiago, who again landed in Galicia in a stone barge after his death in the Holy Land. So that's quite an interesting little legend there. And the after his death part is the only part of a little trouble with from a historic point of view. His body was apparently put into a stone barge in, I believe, Jaffa on the coast and apparently sailed to Galicia where it was washed up and then his bones were found in the Field of Stars, the Compostela. So the by, legend goes, yeah. So the legend goes, yes. Which has to be true because his bones are in the church in Santiago. <laughs> so obviously it's true. <laughs> and I'm not going to say any more about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying away from that one. <laughs> We're not going to get into that uh, argument at all. But it's a really interesting place to stay. I like Murcia. It's a very pretty mm-hmm. place. There's a couple more little churches and chapels that are really worth looking into as well, all stone-built. So quite a nice little place to stay. And you're practically at the westernmost part of Spain here in Murcia. Almost. We'll actually get to that on the following day. So from Murcia, we'll head down to Finisterre, which is not quite the westernmost point, but it's near enough. The next place, really, from Finisterre, heading west, is the US. It's pretty much the westernmost part of Galicia, and the traditional endpoint for the Camino de Santiago, where pilgrims symbolically cast off their walking clothes and then sit on the beach and watch the sunset across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, okay. 
the Mushir Finisterre Way is one I've not walked, but I'd quite like to do it. It's a triangle with about 80 kilometres, 50 miles on a side. So it's about, I think it's supposed to be about a six-day triangle, something like that. Okay. Which is quite interesting. Now, one of the so, things I want to pause and interrupt here because I've been trying to track where you're going as you're talking about mm-hmm. it. And, of course, we run into this issue that every name you use, there's another name for the same place. And you mentioned something about the Celts, and that's certainly mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we have different names here is the, that this is a Celtic region. We didn't really say that there is still Celtic influence in Galicia. There certainly is, yes. We still have Celtic music. We have a variety of bagpipes called gaitas. And Galicia is actually one of the seven Celtic nations. So yes, there's a lot of influence. And as I said, we've got a lot of Celtic hill forts too. There's over 3,000 Celtic hill forts in Galicia. Okay, I did not know that. So, yeah, a lot. And that's only the ones that are known. There's actually one literally just up the road from where I'm sitting. It's derelict, but it's there still. And I'm it's assuming then we're talking Iron Age forts, roughly circular yes. forts at the top of hills. Okay, got it. That's right. Yes, we are indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And we're actually going to see a couple of those on our third day. Carry on. So we've gone down to Finisterre. We're still heading south along the west coast of Galicia. Now, I should just say the west coast of Galicia, it's not a direct route, this, because there's a lot of rias in Galicia. It's a very wobbly sort of coastline. So it goes in and out a lot, which actually makes it very pretty, but by no means a direct route. I should also say that on this tour, we're doing around about 100 miles or so a day, but Galicia is, it's a nice place, I think, to drive around. Traffic is very light. Even in the big cities, it's not really particularly busy. We drive on the correct side of the road, if you're coming from the US. Some of the roads are quite narrow, and we do have quite a lot of potholes. But other than that, it can be really quite pretty, and it's worth stopping when you can, just to have a look and enjoy the views, really. You could do each day in less than a couple of hours if you just drove it straight, but what's the point in that, really? (laughs) We want to see something, and we want to enjoy what we're seeing. This day three is only about 50 miles, but there's a lot to see, and it's very windy in and out of the rears. So it's it's a gentle drive, if you like, with lots of stops. Mm-hmm. So from Finisterre, the end of the world, we head off downhill again, and we're going to stop at the Favenza do, do Ezero, which is a waterfall. It's the only waterfall in Spain which flows directly into the sea. There's only, I think, a handful of them in Europe altogether. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly high, the waterfall, but it is quite spectacular as it crashes down into the sea. So it's a, it makes a nice little stop. And there's some cafes there, and quite often there's a little street market there too. So that's worth a stop and having a lot round. From there, we're going to head down to a place called Carnota which has the longest beach in Galicia. We're getting a lot of longest, highest, greatest things today. I'll warn you already. Right. <laughs> I don't know why, but there's a lot of these just on this little bit of coast. So the longest beach in Galicia is about six miles long, 11 kilometres, and it's beautiful golden sand 
We last went in July and had the beach almost to ourselves, other than a few people that had parked up near to where the cars were. Once we got down the other end of the beach, there was nobody. So it was just absolutely gorgeous. It's nice flat sand. There's rock pools at each end of the beach, so it's mm -hmm. quite beautiful, really. Carnota is also home to one of the longest orioles or grain stores in Galicia. Okay. Now, these are traditional stone-built buildings where the maize, the grain, was stored. If you can imagine a sort of mushroom, a large stone mushroom, and then they sit on top of that, and it's to stop the rats or other pests getting in and destroying the corn. So they're usually stone-built with either wooden or stone-slatted sides. The ones at the coast tend to be stone-sided, the ones in the interior wooden. Okay. Uh, and this one is 115 feet long, so it's quite a long grain huh. store, really. It goes off like a, a sort of perspective drawing, really, when you stand next to it. And so it's so long and thin, it was what surprised me. It's very me. long and thin, yes. It's only about a metre wide, but it's huh. a metre three feet wide, but 115 feet long, yeah. So you'll see a lot of these around Galicia. They're quite interesting buildings. And still used, actually, in places, too. I'd like to mention a lunch stop here. I'm not going to mention many because places do change. But there's a really nice traditional Galician restaurant in Carnota called Casa Fandino. And I'll just mention here as well that there's, for eating in Galicia, one of the things I would suggest is to try a menu of the day, which okay. is usually available at lunchtime. And it's a set menu costs between 12 up to maybe 18 euros some places but it will always include at least two courses often three it will include bread water and usually wine and sometimes especially in the interior coffee is included as well so you usually get a really good meal that'll pretty much set you up for the rest of the day <laughs> and the best places to go for this are somewhere on the road where you see a lot of trucks parked outside because okay. those truck drivers know where to go for lunch and they're usually the best spots okay and the casa fandino has a very short menu there's only about six to eight items on the menu and you combine them as you want for starter and main course but the last time we went we had i think the best ribs i've ever had anywhere it's just somewhere that i really really like okay okay so while i'm talking about food i'd just like to also mention another thing that people should do while they're here which is to visit one of the many street markets that are here each town has at least one usually two or more street markets a month and these street markets as well as selling food clothing pots pans whatever they always have at least one or two stalls selling pulpo, which is the Galician octopus, okay. which is one of the iconic Galician dishes, really. And I think everybody should try, unless you're vegetarian, obviously, then ignore me entirely and don't try it. But <laughs> in Galicia, it's cooked in a very traditional manner in big, well, huge, actually, pots over, over a fire. It's boiled and then it's cut up onto a wooden platter with olive oil, salt and spicy paprika. And it's eaten with cocktail sticks and with lots of the Galician spongy bread to dip up all that 
lovely olive oil juice. And okay. really the only way to try it is at one of the street markets, preferably at a long wooden bench where you have to prop your platter up with a bit of bread because it all tilts to one side and it all dribbles out the end. It's all <laughs> very authentic. It's certainly the way to eat it. It's beautiful like that. And the street markets are the place to go. And if you don't want to actually buy a portion of pulpa but want to try it, if you hang around one of the stalls and look longingly, they'll almost invariably offer you a piece to try. So it's worth doing that at least. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to continue southward again um, along the west coast. And we're going to be going now around some of the rias, heading down towards the bottom of Galicia. The ria of Muros and Noya is a really pretty drive. You go inland and around and back and then back and around again. There is a lot of smuggling on the west coast. Some people say there still is. But you can imagine with these little rears, lots of inlets, lots of little coves to hide. Sure. It was the perfect place for smuggling things in. So there, there's quite a history of smuggling. And actually, the, the Vikings also came, surprisingly, came up the rears to ransack what was then the capital of Galicia. That's a place that is now called Padron. was called Iria Flavia, I think probably terribly pronounced that's the roman name that used to be the capital of galicia and it was one of the reasons that the capital was moved to santiago de compostela because santiago unlike most capitals doesn't have a river doesn't have any access by mm. water and so was considered much safer for the gold and the jewels that the church had and so a much safer place to store these there's actually a viking festival on the, I think it's the first Sunday in August, at a place called Catoira, which is on this coast. That's the sort of reenactment festival and really worth going to see. They not only dress up as Vikings and Celts and have battles, they also have two, I think two, genuine Viking longships, which the Galithians actually went to Norway to find out how to build them and brought them back. And on the day of the festival, they're sailed down the Ria towards the sea and they have a sort of mock battle at, at the entrance to the Ria, which is quite interesting. And it's, it's an interesting visit, an interesting festival if you come in August. So we're continuing to head south and we're going to go next to one of the Celtic hill forts called Acastro de Baronia, which is... A Castro is the Spanish name for a hill fort or fortified settlement. And this one is just beyond the port town of Porto de Son. And it's, for me, it's one of the most jaw-dropping of the fortified settlements at all because it juts out into the Atlantic Ocean on a low mound. Really quite stunning, I think. And you can still see the roundhouses. The first time we ever went, there was only a little wooden sign that said sort of Castro this way. And that was it. They do actually have an interpretation centre now. So there's a little bit more there. But it still sits very isolated on that coast. I think with the Castro de Baronia, you can feel the weight of all those thousands of years of history. And I personally, I can still imagine the inhabitants on that very isolated mound living their lives, really. 
A little further on from the Castro, there's an even older structure, which is a dolmen or a Stone Age burial chamber, which is literally just a small sort of cleverly balanced stone table sitting on top of three more large stones. Mm. But it sits in a parkland of trees, isolated, 4,000 years old, and it's just sitting there, just waiting for people to come and have a look at it. So, again, it's I find it quite astonishing, really, the amount of history that we have here, really, just sitting waiting to be discovered, if you like. From there, we're going to head down to one of the natural parks of Galicia, which are the sand dunes of Corobedo, which is on the tip of the peninsula. It's supposedly the largest mobile sand dune in the northwest. And there's a legendary city called Valverde, which is supposedly buried beneath the sand dunes. I don't know about that. I've never dug for it, but they're worth going to see. It's just another of the natural wonders that we've got in Galicia that are just quite interesting, really. Okay. And we're going to end our third day just around the corner from there at a small town called Pobre de Caraminal. There's a highly recommended Casa Rural there called Entre Os Rios, between our rivers. Our fourth day, we're heading down along the Rio de Rausa and inland to the Roman city of Orense, taking in hot peppers and hot pools on the way. Okay. So first we're going to head to Padron, which is just south of Santiago de Compostela, and where the original capital of Galicia, or one of the original capitals of Galicia was. Padron is famous for its small green peppers, pimientos, small peppers, okay. called pimientos de Padron, and they're served deep fried and sprinkled with sea salt. Hmm. Now, these are genuinely just tasty little peppers, but every tenth one has a chilli bite. So they're often <laughs> called the Russian roulette of peppers. <laughs> now, I love chilli. My husband hates chilli. So you uh-huh. can guess who's the one that always gets the chilli one. And we always have these sort of, it's going to be that one's the chilli one. So I try it. No, that's not chilli. He tries the one I don't think it is. It's chilli. <laughs> it's quite interesting that those peppers were, apparently the seeds were brought back from Mexico in the 16th century by Franciscan monks. Hmm. And they actually developed the strain of peppers in one of the monasteries there. Quite interesting. There's apparently, interesting fact as well, over... £33,000 worth of Padron peppers are grown each year. That's 15,000 kilograms grown. And they have a fiesta at a nearby town called Urban in August. And they give away some £4,000 of, or two tonnes, two American tonnes, of pimientos during that weekend. So if you like peppers and want to try them, then again, the first Sunday in August is the time to come down to Urbom and try some peppers, chilli or otherwise. All right. (laughs) So while I'm talking about festivals, we have many, many, many festivals in Galicia. I've got a, a little, not a little, quite a thick booklet that's the festivals of Galicia. There are just so many. You can pretty much find a festival, I think, almost any day of the week. But some of the best, to my mind, are the gastronomic festivals. And quite often they are just like one thing. There's 
the Pimientons, like I said. There's a festival of bread in a village quite near to us called Saya, which is very famous for its bread. And they even have a walking route that takes in all the bread ovens, which are traditional stone wood-fired bread ovens. In October, there's a festival of seafood at a fishing village called Ogrobe, which is quite near to where we're heading on this tour. And that's really worth going. It's the first two weeks in October. And Ogrobe is a small fishing village. And pretty much everything that is served at the festival is caught just off the shore. So okay. they have mussels, oysters, clams, and goose barnacles, which are Galithia's renowned Persebes. They are said to be one of the most dangerous seafood to collect because they're collected from the rocks along the Costa da Morte, the death coast, okay. um, by fishermen who have to walk onto those rocks to collect them. And quite a few are drowned doing so. It's a really dangerous occupation. The Persebes are yeah, strange little things, really. A bit like jelly. Like a little dead finger, really. The Glyphians really like them. And they're very expensive. Can't remember exactly, but something like 60 euros a kilo. So pretty expensive. And worth trying probably at least once. <laughs> Possibly only once, but at least once. I'm just not sure that the international food, wine, and travel writers would use the term dead fingers for those. <laughs> it's got to be something a little more. You have to see one. Google it after and have a look. That is exactly what it looked like, I tell you. That's what it looks like. From there, we're going to head down. This depends on how long people have. I'm only doing an eight-day tour. If people have got longer, then there's so many places to stop on the way. Right. There's the small city of Pontevedra, which is the capital of the province of its name. There's four provinces in, in Galicia, and we're visiting all four of the provincial capitals on this tour. Pontevedra is, I think, possibly the smallest of the capitals. It's got a very compact old town with wide stone plazas and arched porticos going along. So it's a very pretty old town. And in September, it has a medieval fair, which again is one of these costume dressing up things where they have medieval markets. And it's very interesting to visit in that setting, particularly. And it also has the ruins of Santo Domingo, which is a 14th century convent, which actually sit right in the middle of the city, very incongruous, just sit there in the middle of the city but you can go in and have a, a look around they're ruined but there's some old tombs and things that you can look at now if someone has a spare day i would really really recommend a day trip to the Sears and ons island natural park these are a group of islands off the coast pretty unspoilt they've got white sand beaches that wouldn't look out of place in the tropics although the sea's considerably colder <laughs> and there's natural walking routes around the islands. Really, really, really pretty. They're not open all year round. Booking is essential. And at certain times of year, you do need a ticket to actually land on the island. So if you are booking, you do need to make sure that whoever you're booking through has actually got you the tickets to land. The last time we booked, I had an argument with the company because they said we didn't need them. And I said we did. And they found out we did. And good job I checked because we wouldn't have been able to land. So it's mm. worth checking. But they are I'm really beautiful. I'm assuming this is something we're going to do certain times of year, which begs the whole question of 
for this itinerary that you're giving us, what's the best time of year to do it? Oh, that's difficult. Like I say, there's so many things to see. The tourist season in Galicia is sort of July, August time. That is it. That's when Galicians go on holiday. That's when they're going to be on the West Coast at the beaches. That's when it's going to be busiest. So I would actually avoid that season if you could, personally. The shoulder season September, even into October and May, June are really beautiful. We can have some lovely weather at that time of year. We can have some terrible weather at any time of year because it's Galicia and it's green and it can be wet. But quite often September, October or May, June are really beautiful months here. So they're the months that I would suggest, I think. And there's some good festivals in those times as well. Like I say, there's the El Grobe Festival is in the beginning of October. The medieval festival in Pontevedra is in September. And there's a couple of festivals in June that are really worth going to as well. So I, I would say those sort of times if you could. Okay. But to be fair, even if you come at the busiest time, this is not the Costa del Sol. This is not right. somewhere where there are millions of tourists loitering about. It's just not that sort of place. Tourists you're likely to get are going to be Galician tourists or maybe tourists from Madrid, where it's far too hot in the summer, right. or from the north coast, where they come over to the west coast in summer. There's not a huge, huge amount of tourism, which I've never really understood, because it's such a amazing place. I've never really got it. That's life. Anyway, maybe after this podcast, we'll get lots of tourists. <laughs> and then I'll say, darn, I wish we hadn't done that. But anyway. <laughs> so from the coast, we're now going to head inland, to the Roman city of Orense, which is the capital of the province of that name. Mm-hmm. It's the third biggest city in Galicia. It's got about 100,000 inhabitants. But Orense very rarely gets into the guidebooks. It's the only landlocked province in Galicia. Okay. But it's on the Rio Minho, which is the big river that actually forms the border with Portugal and flows out into the Atlantic Ocean. Got it. And Orense is known as the city of water, and it's also the Galicia's thermal capital. It has thermal pools and mm. more than three million litres of thermal water, which run from the various sources every day, every single day, mm. three million litres of water. So that water's heated up underground and is then forced to the surface. There are pools all the way along the River Minho in Orense, And there's a couple of thermal pools actually in the city, old city centre itself, an area called Asburgas, where there's a pool which is actually free to go into. It's a stone-lined pool and you can sit in there in water, beautifully warm. It's about 100 Fahrenheit, 40 degrees centigrade, so lovely and like bath water, really nice and warm. And it was actually first settled in the Roman era, or first settled as a thermal tourism spot in the Roman era. A Roman camp was actually settled. The Romans really liked their hot pools. They liked (laughs) thermal waters. So they settled a camp near to the Minio River, and that gave rise to the area called Asburgas now. There's a large fountain there that was built, I think, in the 1800s, and the water that comes out of that is actually at 140 degrees Fahrenheit, so something like 60 degrees centigrade, really hot. 
And it said that if you are able to pray a whole Our Father with your hand under the water, that you will be blessed. I think you'll Yikes. probably be blessed with a burnt hand, but you will apparently be blessed. And that is the heat of the water as it's actually pushed out of the ground. There's places in the Minho River where you can actually walk into the river and burn your feet because it's so hot, which is quite astonishing, really. Yeah. Orensi has, it's got a lot of things going for it, I think. It's got the thermals, it's got the river, you can walk around the river. It's a nice eight-mile walk around the river, nice and level. It's got bridges, it's got a, an old town, very nice old town. So we're going to stop there, we're going to stay here overnight and have a lazy day on day five, just really looking around Orensi, and it's only going to be a very short drive on the, this following day. Arenti has plenty of places to stay, lots of hotels. We, the last time we stayed, which was at Christmas, we stayed in a, a part hotel, which is a very new apartment, which is a renovated old stone building right in the centre of town. was, I think, the nicest apartment I've ever stayed in. It's called Morar Apartments, M-O-R-A-R. And it was just absolutely stunning. They've kept the building true to itself so they've got the stone hallway the original windows but with double glazing in they've done everything to keep it as it was and i think there's a lot of our own old stone buildings in galicia that are becoming run down and it's such a shame and i think it's lovely to see something being done with some of them and them being renovated and hopefully if tourists come and stay in them then more will be renovated because they're, they're just falling down and it's a crying shame really it mm. is. Anyway, that's me. I love architecture. I love old architecture. And it You're when... preaching to the choir here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> shut me up. Shut my mouth. So on day five, we're going to have a nice lazy day exploring the city of Arensi. It's got some great shopping streets, which we haven't mentioned shopping yet, but there's plenty of shopping streets. It's got a, a main square with lots of nice little cafes that you can sit and just enjoy the main square. It's got cathedrals and tiny alleyways with loads and loads of lovely coffee shops. The Lyceo is a theatre building, a historic theatre building, where you can get a cup of coffee as well as going to the theatre. And it's in an old stone building with friezes inside. Really worth architecturally having a look at. Just go and sit and have a coffee in there. It's beautiful. And there's a small road train that runs from the main square in the centre of the old town mm -hmm. and it's I think it's around a euro fare and it crosses over the Mino River over the Roman Bridge and heads up to the thermal pools which are lined along the Rio Mino and it's a lovely little very bouncy route as you cross <laughs> the Mino you can see the other 10 bridges I think it is that span the Mino okay. the river they vary completely from the modern Millennium Bridge, which was built at the turn of this century, which is all white tubular steel with wavy lines, and you can actually walk up and over that. I'm waving my arms around. That doesn't help at all, does it? <laughs> <laughs> a, a stunningly modern bridge. It is, yes. To the, the clean lines of the stone-built Pontinova, the new bridge, which was mm. built in the 1800s, so not that new, really. And all the bridges are completely different. So it's quite a nice little ride. And when you get to the other end, make sure you've got your swimming costume and your towel. 
and there's a series of I think about eight pools along the river other than one which is paid which is a private one all the others are free to use at the moment and all you need is you have to have your swimming costume and you're not allowed to wear obviously outdoor clothes or shoes in the pools so they're all just chest height you can sit in lovely hot water and it's great if it's a cool day to just sit there and watch the steam rising and look out at the river and at the trees it's set in a parkland so it's really very pretty and if you like thermals then i think they're gorgeous really okay. and this is um, the thermal train i think is the name of this great, little yeah. tourist train that's okay. right it's a little tourist train yeah that's right yeah. and I should say that the water's mineralised and it's supposed to be very good for lots of different conditions as these are, but I just like it because it's relaxing, really. You know. And did I mention it's free? Yeah, it's free. Oh, okay. I can't understand. So back in the city centre, one of our favourite restaurants is called Maria Andrea, and that's in a historical building, which is interesting in itself and has got a very interesting history, which there's a little notice on the wall that you can read all about it. So that's quite a nice stop. And then after lunch, we're going to head eastward to the city of Monforte de Lemos, which is just 35 miles away, 50 kilometres away. And that sits in the centre of a flat plain encircled by hills. The roads running across the plain are arrow straight. They're like Roman roads and they all head towards Monforte, passing through a patchwork of green fields and little villages. And in the very, very centre of this plain, you've got a tall, narrow hill that looks like, it looks like a wizard's hat. So if you can imagine the brim is the flat plain okay. with the mountains around. And then in the middle, there's this very tall, very narrow mound, which is the old town of Monforte de Lemos. And on the very top of that is a 17th century Benedictine monastery which has been turned into a parador, which oh, are wow. the Spanish government-owned luxury hotels. Yeah. And that's where I would actually suggest staying the night. They're not always as expensive as you would expect. There's yep. quite often special deals on. They quite often do special deals with dinner and breakfast included. And anyway, what the heck, spoil yourselves, because it is a setting that is incomparable, really. You've I'm, got I'm views all the way the around. Paradors. Sorry? I'm a big fan of the Spanish Paradors. They are amazing. They're always historic buildings. Right. And as I say, quite often they're situated just amazingly. And this one is, I just said, it, it's beautiful. You've got views all the way around from the top. Monforti itself has a history going back to pre-Roman times as a Celtic village. The Castro was probably around where the Parador is now, so it was probably on the top of that mound. But it was destroyed in the 8th century by the invading Moors, who did actually get up to Galicia, although some people say they didn't. But they never bothered to settle Galicia because it was just too cold for them. So they just took the money and, and ran. They didn't bother with us, really. But the name Monforti, which is the fortified mount, was first mentioned in a document in about 1190 by Alfonso IX. And in 1456, the land was given to the Counts of Lemos in perpetuity. So that's why it's now Monforte de Lemos. The hill itself, as I said, is the old town, the old medieval town, which actually hugs that hillside going all the way up. It spirals around it. 
and you can see the remains of the old city walls and the last remaining archway into the old town. And the houses going up there, some of them are derelict, some are not, but they're all stone and some are so tiny. I'm only five foot two and I can actually not get under the doorways of some of them. I actually hit my head on the first floor balconies. <laughs> they're just like some these of, really Some of us tiny... are used to that, but I bet you're not. No, I'm not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> I fit under Galician doorways quite well usually, but even me. Yeah, and actually Monforti also has a medieval fair in, I think it's April, which again is mainly in the old town and that really makes it come alive with all the stores and the medieval dress and the eagles and people doing birds of prey and whatever. So that that's worth looking at if you get over in, I think it's April, I'm almost sure it's April. Yep, it um, is. It is. Ah, good, you've checked. Well done. At the bottom of the old town, the new town is not particularly pretty. Most of Galician newer towns, I have to say, aren't pretty. They tend to be 60s built apartment blocks. But at the base, there is a lovely park called Parque dos Condes, the Count's Park. And it's lovely to eat a picnic lunch there on the benches, overlooking the ducks. There's lots of ducks on the River Cabe, and you can actually hire, I think, canoes and possibly pedalos along the river too. And you can look at the spectacular facade of the Escalapios, which is a huge, it's a school now, but I think it might have been a convent or monastery school okay. originally. And that's quite spectacular. And you can either then drive up to the Parador, or if you're feeling energetic, you can actually walk up. Now, it's a very steep walk up the old town, but it's actually a lot quicker than driving because you have to go such a long route round to spiral up. It's really a steep, short walk to the top. And then you can have a nice cup of coffee in the Parador Cafe. And if you're staying overnight, I would recommend having dinner there. It's not the cheapest place in Monforti, but it is very good food and the service is excellent. And it's in... A beautiful setting. You can sit and drink coffee looking at the old cupola in the middle of the square, in the middle of the monastery, and it's quite a beautiful setting really. Excellent. And next door to the Parador is actually a tower called the Torre do Menachi. It's a four-storey square castle keep from I think the 1100s. It's got six foot thick walls a vast underground rainwater collection chamber so it could withstand sieges and did on a number of occasions. So all of the inhabitants of the town would fall back to the tower, the keep, when they were under siege and they could all hole up there with reserves of rainwater and food and last out months. And that's an amazing place and the views from the top of that are the most spectacular, providing it's a clear day. And I have to say that Monforte de Lemos does get probably more mist than anywhere else I know. Because of the river running through and because of the mountains around it, it tends to be a very misty place. And quite often as you come in, you can see that parador floating on a sort of island of mist as you drive towards Wonderful. it. So yeah, it is, it, it really is, yeah. On the next day, we're going to head up. We're going to have a long drive on the sixth day. And we're heading up to the Roman walled city of Lugo, which is our local city and one of my favourite cities. So we're going to leave Monforti and we're heading eastward into one of the most picturesque wildernesses left in Galicia, 
and possibly in Europe, called Ocorel, which is in the very east of Galicia. It's a very mountainous region, and it's this very winding roads, very picturesque. Luckily, there's plenty of places to pull up and admire the views, because it's definitely not safe to do so while you're driving. I just mentioned that we're just going to go along the second largest river in Galicia on this, which is the River Sill, for a little way, uh, which is a totally different river from the Minho River. It's very deep and brooding. There's the canyons of the Sill, and you can take a catamaran trip or actually even go by canoe along there, which is well worth it if there's time. There's a, another castro called Castro Cardelis with a, a medieval castle, a 14th century medieval castle, but we're not going to go there because I'm running out of time. So we're going to head up into the Ocarel and the main road north through the Ocarel, it just winds around mountain after mountain at an average height of about 4,000 feet, so quite high up. The town of Forgoso, the Corel, is the capital of the area. It's a tiny little town, but it's got a very nice tourist information with lots of leaflets of places to go and things to see. A couple of my favourites are the remains of Castro de Torre, which is a hilltop village which was actually constructed around the first century for people involved in extracting the newly found gold deposits in the area. Okay. So it's a Roman Celtic village, really. And it sits on a high spur above the road with just nothing else in sight. I think there was like one house that you could see from this Castro, so it's just completely isolated, even now. So very historical. And a little further on, there's a ruined castle of Carbedo, which was home to the Order of Santiago, which was one of the religious military orders founded in the 1100s. And their objective was the defence of Christianity, specifically against the Moors, and the answer directly to the Pope. And this castle, it, it's ruined. There's no entrance fee, no anything, just a board there. And we went and climbed up it. And you can climb right to the top. And it's still there, even though it's ruined. You've got this circular castle sitting isolated in the middle of a field just off the road. And again, just incredibly historical, really. It's quite a historical day, really, because we're going to head up, like I say, just winding through the Ocarel. There's some beautiful places to stop and have natural walks along rivers, through the mountains, up to waterfalls. There's so much to do. You could actually spend a whole week just in the Ocarel. And it, it's so wild. It's amazing. Hmm. But we want to get to the walled city of Lugo. So Lugo is our local city. The walls were built in the 3rd century when the town was fortified. And it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2000 for the finest example of late Roman fortification in Western Europe. Oh, the okay. walls are about 2.2 kilometres all the way around, and you can walk all the way around the walls. And they totally encircle the old town. So the bit that is really of interest in Lugo is all within the walls. Okay. You've got, I think it's eight or eleven gates five of them are the original roman gates some are newer because they actually wanted people to be able to get into the city later on the original gates were were proper gates they were fortified and they could stop people they could seal off the town and then obviously fire down lugo sits again on a hill and you can see it was a very easily defensible position 
when you actually look from the top of the walls. Lugo is quite a small city and it's easy to walk around. There's lots of museums in Lugo and lots of things to see. There is a Roman bath that was excavated, which is just next to the cathedral. A lovely cathedral, well worth looking at. Not as gold-filled as Santiago, but for me personally, I think it's actually more beautiful. Okay. Architecturally, I think it's more beautiful because I like the stonework rather than the gold. That's just my point of view, but it's worth having a look at. And under the streets of Lugo, they say every time they dig, they find Roman remains. You just can't dig anywhere without sure. finding something. And one of my favourite museums is called El Domus. And it was discovered during excavation works. They found an old Roman manor house, which had been destroyed when they built the walls. But there's still some of the decorated walls inside intact, together with a temple to Mithras, which is one of the Roman Persian gods. Uh -huh. And there's a very good in information video, which you can put into English. And it's got lots of Roman finds in there. It's a lovely little museum. And there's some amazing shops in the old town as well. You really mustn't miss the cork and string shop. I don't okay. know what it's actually called, but everybody calls it the cork and string shop because it sells corks and string. And that's all it sells. <laughs> it sells corks of any size you want and string of any size you want from rope down to tiny little bits of string. And it's the most amazing little shop just tucked in underneath the walls. And it's been there forever. And there's a lot of those little sort of okay. shops in, in Logo that you can just find places like that. And the other thing that I need to say about Logo is it's one of the best places for tapitas, which are like a small tapas. Okay. So instead of ordering a tapas, which is a bit bigger, you usually get a free tapitas with every drink that you order. Sometimes in Logo you even get two, one from the kitchen and one from the cold plate, which okay. they will circulate around. That's a lovely way of trying various delicacies. And you can walk around the area around the Plaza de Campo. is lovely for bars, little alleyways. You can just pop in bars and try the tapitas. It's a really nice evening to spend doing that. So from Lugo, the next day, we're going to head up to the north coast, which is completely different from the west coast of Galicia. I'm doing a circle around not all of Galicia because I can't quite get it all in into eight days, but right. I'm trying to cover all the different aspects, the different sort of interesting places that I can. On the way up, we're going to stop. I would stop for lunch at Pariada, in, which is a grill, sorry, in a place called Mira the Pariada or Pozo, which is an excellent place for a menu del dia, menu of the day lunch. I think it's around 13 euros, very good food. And on the way up, we're also going to stop at Villadonga, which is another Iron Age Castro site with a museum and an information office. And this one was actually discovered by a couple of people ploughing the fields and they dug up a gold torque, a necklace, uh -huh. and a few other things and then when they started to dig they found I think it's actually the largest Castro in Galicia and they've only excavated something like half of it so far and it's huge and it just sits on quite a low mound but this area is called the Terra Char which is a very flat area although it's high up it's flat so it's like a sort of plain and it sits there it's very wild pretty windswept and another really interesting Castro to stop at 
And a little bit further up, there's a town called Apontinoba, which has a series of huge lime kilns. These were circular towers which were used to process iron ore for steel export to Britain and Germany. And ironworking has apparently been in Apontinoba since at least the 15th century, so quite a long time. And this town was particularly well placed because it had the Ao River, it had plenty of wood to make charcoal to fuel the kilns, and it had a lot of iron as well. So it's an interesting historical town. And there's a couple of nice, quite short walking routes in the town. The oven route, the Ruta dos Fornos, which is the kilns, and the mines route, the Ruta das Minas, which are worth a short walk around. They're only a couple of hours, I think, each one. And we're going to head up to the north coast to the town, which is the entrance to Galicia, Ribadeo. And that's where we first walked into Galicia. And along the coast from there is La Playa de Algas Santas, which is a beach better known as cathedrals or the cathedrals. And it's a series of natural rock sculptures on the beach, which are up to 30 metres high in quite magnificent shapes with sort of strata. You can see the different levels of the rocks on these. And you can actually go down onto the beach, although you do now need tickets to go onto the beach. And at some times of year, you would need to book it. But I actually think it's just as spectacular looking from above. You can actually look down onto the beach. So the north coast of Galicia is completely different to the west coast, but it's still beautiful. It's got lots of natural little coves and inlets. And there's a couple of seaside towns that I really like. One's called Foz, which sits on Aria and has beaches on the Ria and on the Cantabrian coast as well. And the other one is a town called Vivero, which is a popular tourist resort. And it was an important commercial port in the Middle Ages. And the steep old town leads up to a 14th century Gothic stone-built church called San Francisco, which is an interesting church. You don't see many octagonal churches, and it's, it's quite a pretty stone. That's right at the top of a steep hill. So on the last day, we're going to head round the north and back down to A Coruña. So we're going to go via Ortigueira, which hosts a Celtic music festival each July. And it's got some lovely beaches nearby, quite often deserted beaches if you're outside of the main season. And we're going to call in at Ferrol, which is a former naval base and a shipbuilding port across the Ria from A Coruña. And the 16th century castle of San Felipe, which together with the two on the opposite side of the rear, guarded the rear from invaders. Between the castles, they used to run an iron chain across the rear sure. and effectively blocking it to ships that came down the rear. San Felipe is, there's still quite a lot of the castle left and it's free to enter. And you can actually still see part of the old iron chain running underneath the rear. And you can see when it's not misty across the rear to the old castles opposite San Martin. And from Ferrol, we're going to head down into another natural park called Fragastume, which is a 22,000 acre, 9,000 hectare natural reserve of temperate rainforest or Atlantic forest. It's a very humid forest. 
So it's home to native species of trees like oaks, sweet chestnuts, things like that, but also for many ferns and mosses. And it's got that sort of damp, warm feeling to it. There's running water everywhere. It's beautiful. There's a monastery at the top of the hill called San Cavero, which was built in the 10th century. And there's actually a lovely walk. It's about six kilometres circular walk, which takes you up to the monastery along a, a roadway and then down through the forest itself, which is it's a relatively easy walk, but it's a bit steep and a bit rugged in places. You have to climb over tree roots and boulders and things like that. But a really beautiful walk back down to the river. Okay. And then we're going to head back towards Acarunya via some of the beaches. There's some beautiful beaches on there. And the best thing to do is just to look for a sign saying Praia, which is the beach. And you'll probably discover a beach that nobody goes to. There's just so many little <laughs> coves and beaches that are just sitting there waiting for somebody. The town of Bitanzos is worth stopping at. That's another 13th century town built by King Alfonso IX. And it was the capital of one of the original seven Galician provinces. And then we're going to go back to Acarunya. And you can wander around the coastline. There's a walk that goes all the way around that bulge, that ET head. That takes in the old town and the port and takes in the Tower of Hercules. And if you're going to Maria Pita Square, that's got lots of little bars and cafes. It's lovely to just sit there. And you can have a look at the large statue to the Galician heroine, Maria Pita, who in 1589 allegedly repelled 12,000 English sailors under Sir Francis Drake with just 4,000 peasants after her husband was slaughtered. So the English weren't very popular at that point, but thankfully, Two and a half centuries later, we helped the Spanish fight in the Napoleonic Wars. So I think now they don't mind us quite as much as they used to, maybe. <laughs> so that, that's basically my tour. It's quite a whistle-stop tour of Galicia, but hopefully it will give people enough of a flavour of the area to maybe make them want to come back. There's so many other places you could go. The area where I live is called the Ribeira Sacra, which is the sacred riverside because of the number of Romanesque churches along the river. And you could easily spend a week just in that area itself. And I've not even really covered very much of that. So it's a beautiful place and I could talk all day and I probably have. So I think I'll stop. <laughs> Little longer episode than we usually do. Yes, yeah, sorry. I, I have I didn't want to stop you. I could picture myself doing this trip. So I was loving every minute of it. Let's you can wrap it up, though. You are standing in the prettiest spot in Galicia. Where are you standing and what are you looking at? We spoke earlier about one of the Castros, right. the Castro de Baronia. And there's so many beautiful spots in Galicia, but I do love the ocean. So this is mine. So close your eyes and imagine you're walking through a quiet woodland. It's pine trees, thick pine trees. You can smell the pine trees and it's very quiet. There's nobody about. And then suddenly the vista opens up and there's the Atlantic Ocean in front of you. And to one side, there's a dune-backed sandy beach with golden yellow rock roses and tufts of sea campion blowing in the wind. But directly in front of you, there's an undulating sheet of granite rock, which leads to a rocky mound littered with circular stone structures. Now this mound is about 20 metres high 
and it's surrounded on three sides by the ocean and it's attached to the mainland by a very thin isthmus and this passes through a narrow opening and a stone-built rampart. In front of the rampart you can see the remains of a wide moat and the circular structures, although they're only waist height, you can imagine that they were dwelling walls, it's pretty obvious what they were. And it's just the most stunning spot and you can just imagine those Celtic people living their lives, having their sheep, their cows, whatever, and just living on that mound and being able to pull up that, that drawbridge, seal themselves off and defend that homestead. And I think it's just the most gorgeous spot, really. I feel like you were prepared for that question. <laughs> I was, yes. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> it wasn't that, is, that is okay. I do not mind preparation at all. One thing that makes you laugh and say only in Galicia. Oh, Galicia has, there's so many things about that, but... I think what I'll say is essentially the hospitality in Galicia. Okay. It's not so much make you laugh, but it's, just, it's certainly only in Galicia, I think. Tourists, you have to remember, are still fairly rare beasts in Galicia, especially foreign tourists. Uh -huh. That is somebody who's not Galician. Most Galician tourists are actually Galicians. And we're still a bit of a novelty. And I think if you make just a little bit of effort, then the Galicians will love you for it and their hospitality will know no bounds at all. So as an example, we have workaways, helpers at our house. Uh -huh. And we took a couple of New Zealand helpers to our local sardine festival, which is every June on the eve of St. John the Baptist Day. Okay. So that's the 23rd of June every year. I don't know why there's sardines on St. John the Baptist Day, but we're not going to get into that. I have no idea. <laughs> The festival is organised by our local town council and they do all the cooking, they give out the sardines, and they give out drink and bread and it's all for free for the residents. Now yeah. our helpers were really quite worried that as tourists they shouldn't be getting all this stuff for free. So I said to them, go and tell them then. So they went up and they tried to explain and they said they were from New Zealand and the guy giving out the sardines got so excited that they'd come all the way from New Zealand to Galicia, to our little town in Galicia. I mean, we've got 3,000 people in our little town. And he started just feeding them sardines. And I think they ate 12 to 14 sardines. <laughs> and he kept saying, I'll save you the best ones. Come back, get some more. So that, that's the Galicians. <laughs> they will give you anything. And if you just try that little bit, they will be hospitality to the last. Excellent. So, and if you had to summarize Galicia in just three words, what three words would you use? <laughs> Me summarize something in three words? That's confusing. <laughs> As you might notice, summary is not my strong point. Okay, I'm going to go for green, because it is. Mystical, because again it is. And wild, because there are so many wild places still in Galicia. Excellent. Our guest again has been Lisa Rose Wright from lisaroserite.wixsite.com slash author. And again, I'll link that in the show notes so you don't have to memorize it. And Lisa, if we wanted to send people to your best post on your website on Galicia, where are we going to send them? Well, I've actually written four books. Three are about our adventures moving to Galicia and renovating our old stone house. But my fourth book was a very personal memoir, a very personal journey around Galicia. It's a lot of the places that we've actually mentioned in the podcast, but a lot of others too. It's really the journeys that we've made, myself, my husband and my mother, who is now 90 and also lives in Galicia with us. 
If you want to know more about Galicia, then by all means look on my website. I do blogs every month and they're usually about Galicia or some aspect of it. Or if you want to look up the book, then you're welcome to do that too. And I assume we're talking about the book Pulpo, Pig and Peppers Travels Around Galicia. That's the one, yes. Uh, all right, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Chris. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on Amateur Traveler and sharing with us your love for Galicia. I, I could, as I said, picture myself doing this road trip. It was a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. Well, do contact us if you ever do. I'd love to show you around. Special thanks to the patrons of the show who help support Amateur Traveler financially and emotionally. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show, go to patreon.com slash amateur traveler. I do have some feedback to put in an episode of the show, but this one's getting a little long. Remember, we do have trips planned for 2022 and 2023 to Japan and to Morocco. And if you're interested in learning more, go to amateurtraveler.com slash trips. But with that, we're going to end this episode of Amateur Traveler. If you have any questions, send an email to host at amateurtraveler.com or better yet, leave a comment on this episode at amateurtraveler.com. And thanks so much for listening. There you have it. Once again, that was Chris Christensen over at the Amateur Traveler. You can check out more of his stuff via the links in the show notes. So just search Amateur Traveler wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.